Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemaautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. We welcome a very special guest to the podcast today, Sophia Rose O'Rourke, a filmmaker and producer who works for Bunya Productions in Sydney, Australia. Sophia chats to us about her exquisite short film Dance Russe, her experience as an autistic woman in the film industry, and then we move on to a discussion of her chosen feature film, the 1993 movie The Secret Garden. Thanks again to Sophia for joining us and for being such a brilliant and illuminating guest. Shortly after recording, Sophia provided a link to an article on theconversation.com about autism and employment. The link is included here in the show notes if you'd like to have a read. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, my name is David Hartley, and I'm joined by the uh, lovely Lillian Crawford and the excellent Ethan Lyon. Uh, once again, hello to both of you. Are you both well? Very well, thank you. Not too bad. Thank you for having me back. That's all right. Well, we have you all the time, Ethan. Yeah. <laughs> Contractually obliged to be on. Contractually yeah, obliged you, now. Yeah, you, you really can't you can't get rid of me at this point. Can't so. escape. <laughs> well, that's Many how we people like feel that way with me. It's understandable. <laughs> But also today, we uh, it's an absolute delight that we are joined uh, by a very special guest um, and also that we, we've gone international for the first, first time ever. We are joined today by an Australian guest. We are joined by Sophia Rose O'Rourke, who is coming at us from Sydney, Australia. Hi, Sophia, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. It's a very... It, it's actually almost quite emotional for me to be with you guys because... As we'll get into in our discussion, um, yeah, autism through cinema is a passion of mine and something I don't see much in the Australian context. So it's very exciting to be with you. That's brilliant. And as you've just informed us, you are a uh, you have been a listener to the podcast for a while, which is really exciting. Yes, I tune in every time there's a new podcast, and um, I first found it uh, searching the keyword Agnes Varda, one of my favourite directors, and then thought, oh, my God, is there a neurodiverse sensibility about Agnes? And as it <laughs> turns out, I think you're right, there is. Fantastic. Well, that's really good. And it's really great news for us that our podcast is being found by people all over the world, which is really wonderful. Um, so, Sophia, uh, I thought I would just it's probably easiest if you uh, explain who, who you are, and what you do and um, how you've come to be interested in, uh, in in this topic in autism through cinema. So I'll pass over to you. You can say a bit about yourself. Well, as you mentioned, uh, I live in Australia. I live in Sydney at the moment and um, I'm a producer. I'm a writer. I'm a director and um, 
it's interesting when you talk about you know autism through cinema and how that's a key interest of mine I uh, was making films in the process of making films when I learned I was autistic and I think that without filmmaking I don't know if I ever would have realized the the scale to which my thought processes were neurodivergent it was through the process of of trying to communicate a way of being, a way of seeing and recognising that conventional filmmaking structures were not working for me. Um, I also mentioned that, um, yeah, I'm a producer, so I come from a background of, of radio production and event management and film production. At the moment, I work for an Australian production company called Bunya Productions in development as a development manager, so managing the development slate. So, you know, I've always had this kind of producerial sort of skill set and mindset. And um, that means that for me in my practice, I'm sort of interested in, in two streams. I'm interested in the structural uh, film straight, filmmaking constraints that can confront neurodiverse people to having their visions realized. And I'm interested in this sort of industrial significance of the skill set of neurodiverse people and what they can offer to filmmaking and to this industry because you know, it, it occurs to me that the skills that autistic filmmakers and autistic creatives and autistic administrators, you name it, the skills they have are critical skills for the filmmaking industry, pictorial visual thinking, uh, logical and accurate mindset, um, you know, all these things we know that autistic people bring. I want to see those included in our um, industry in Australia and internationally. And then there's kind of the creative stream to my work, and, and that's about communicating an autistic way of being and probably a very female sensibility as we might discuss further in the films we've chosen. Great Sophia so can you tell us um, uh, how have you, has your uh, your diagnosis and your autism um, affected your sort of approach to your own creative work? Yeah so um, when I made my first film I um, set about making it and I put words in the script. And then when it came to the set and when it came to shooting it, I wanted to take all the words out. And everyone thought I was totally crazy to make a silent film. And it occurred to me uh, that, oh, you know, being autistic, I thought that words are my first language, but, you know, actually it's pictures. And there was this incredible world as an autistic person, which I wanted to recreate, which doesn't include words, which is about actually being an observer who sits outside the frame and watches what's going on. And so, um, you know, I guess, what that taught me in the experience of making it was that there is the creative context in which an autistic perspective might be represented through cinema. And I'm not sure that that can be done in a conventional filmmaking structure. So I'm really interested in like, what are the creative needs of autistic individuals to get their vision communicated through cinema? And that runs parallel to this producing skill set and this interest in how can we create places of meaningful inclusion of neurodiverse people in the film industry. Because it occurs to me that when I look at the sort of um, strengths of autistic individuals, uh, pictorial visual thinking, uh, strong sense of justice, um, you know, eye for detail, logic and accuracy, um, predictability mindset, which is something I only recently learned that autistic people are really good at. They're really good at predicting what's going to happen next in terms of the problem at hand and um, what the flow on effect of tasks will be. I, it just 
makes plenty of sense to me that, oh, well, you know, these are critical filmmaking skills and the industry is really missing out on this inclusion. And I notice in other industries like the tech industry, uh, there is more movement in the space of, you know, neurodiverse centres for excellence. And I'd really like to see that part of our structure in filmmaking. And that, as I said, runs sort of parallel to when I'm making work uh, as a writer director, which is uh, I have found almost impossible in a conventional filmmaking structure. So I think that there is a, a sort of industrial way and there are some practical adjustments that can be made to better support neurodiverse people in the film and television industry. And then I think the separate question, uh, which is more to do with my own creative practice and what I also hear through the podcast and through all of your work, is that uh, there are certain environments that are too neurotypical to communicate a neurodiverse way of being within, and we mm. need to find other ways to, to communicate that way of being on screen. Well, first of all, I'd like to say uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's it's always uh, wonderful to uh, hear from, uh, I was going to say our fans, but that makes me sound like the most insincere children. <laughs> oh, no, I'm a fan. Of all time. <laughs> well, that's good to know. No, but um, I wanted to pick up on a small thing you said about how you thought words were originally your way of expression, but it turned out to be images. And that struck me quite strongly because I was reading, uh, for, for, for reference, my PhD uh, involves me uh, talking about my own autism and uh, cinema, specifically gothic horror cinema. And I was reading a book called Authoring Autism on uh, Rhetoric and Neurological Queerness by a woman called Melanie Yergo. And she says almost precisely the same thing you did, which was that she found that there is something about the, the autistic experience and the autistic way that we understand words, shall we say, and their narrative, which almost makes it um, difficult, shall we say, a neurotypical audience to understand because we, we we see them in different ways. We have these sort of repetitions of of words, of phrases, uh, of, of ticks and so on and so forth. And that sort of makes it sometimes a little tricky for those who are not us to, to understand us. But I thought I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, in that respect, Dance Roos, which I saw this morning and very much enjoyed and thought was a really, really interesting attempt to, to sort of capture that sort of um sort of subjectivity and i'm sort of interested in particular in sort of those repetitions sort of, of repetitions of images so of the, the woman dancing on the beach um and uh the the you know the the, the main character dancing around the the playroom and the playroom itself is a reoccurring theme was that something that you found because i remember you reading in your exegesis a lot of what you found was um editing was also you did it with a neurodiverse individual as well was that something that sort of you felt came about from the early stages of the the sort of the short this sort of interest in that sort of repetition or was this something that you found sort of developed naturally through your own creative progress yeah it's a really interesting question i might just start by sort of um uh sort of summarizing the film and, and why I got you to watch this film instead of any of the others. And 
Um, in a way, I I kind of call this my my rebound film. Um, I I really love this film. It's a film that I lived with for a long time, almost all my life. But the impulse to make it came out of trying to make another film, which uh, failed miserably. And and that's the film in which I learned I was autistic. So, I guess I just say that. Um, uh, before I made Dance Roos, I attempted to make another film, which was a silent film, and I could not communicate uh, my observational thinking, my pictorial thinking, and just the connection that I had to silence on screen to a neurotypical crew. And um, it was really painful for me, and it actually taught me that I was autistic because I realised I was actually seeing things differently. Not only was I confronted by some of the challenges in the film environment, but I also had a way of putting together information from early conception, which was highly visual and not necessarily shared by everyone on my crew. So then I um, I ran away. I went um, I. Uh, I ran away. I went to where I used to live in, in regional Western Australia to a little town called Broome, which is right at the tip tip of Western Australia, highly remote. And um, I got some funding from a group called the Sherman Centre of Culture and Ideas, who have uh, space in, in the UK as well. And um, the brief they gave me was, is, can you make a film about the topic of collecting clothes? And I thought about this idea of, of clothes and clothes collections. And I thought, you know, what could I do with this? And it just sort of occurred to me like a, a like it just hit me in the face. Like, I've got to make that film that's been inside my head all my life. Ever since I've read this poem, I've wanted to make this film. And the film is Dance Roos. And Dance Roos is an, an adaptation of a poem by William Carlos Williams. And um, the poem says, uh, if when my wife is sleeping and the baby and Kathleen are sleeping and the sun is a flame white disc on silken mists above shining trees, if I in my north room dance naked, grotesquely before my mirror, waving my shirt around my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely, I am born to be lonely, I am best so. Who shall say I am not the happy genius of my household? <laughs> and I just love this poem because mm. to me it says so much of the autistic experience of creativity, of salving a loneliness, a really deep well of loneliness that you can only salve through creativity. And even the idea of dancing naked before your mirror, it's like a full-body <laughs> stimming experience. But you're probably wondering, like, what on earth does this poem have to do with collecting clothes? Um, but uh, it's all in the title. The poem is called Dance Russe. It was written around the era of the Russian um, Ballet Russe. And um, the Ballet Russe, if anyone doesn't know about the, the Russian Ballet Russe, they had these extraordinary costumes. Um, and um, they were worn by dancers like Nijinsky. And they were designed by, you know, Matisse and... Um, artists of the time and so I thought I'm going to make a film that uh, captures the feeling of that poem and the aesthetics of the ballet russe and that's what I set out with but of course there's also a strong narrative in there there's a narrative of someone who escapes their domestic loneliness through expression and through creativity so I took I took the film, uh, I wrote a script. The first script had lots of words in it. It had several characters and that sort of script took on its own life. 
Uh, and then when I went to to make it and I shot it in my house in Broome and we did the production design ourselves as well and we painted the set, which is a, a replica of a Sonia Delaunay painting. But when I went to make it, you're right, Ethan, I realised that it was the visual repetitions that were more important than the words. And um, I worked with several neurodiverse people on this film. Uh, my goddaughter is the baby in the film, um, her mother, and also the editor. But here's the kicker. Funnily enough, we made the whole film. I took it back to Sydney. I edited it there. I delivered it. Only after that entire process, I had received my diagnosis by this point, but I didn't still fully understand how that might be seen through my films. And it was only after I delivered it and screened it to an audience and other neurodiverse people commented on the way it spoke to their experience that I realised that I had made a film which was an expression of autism mm. through cinema. And, you know, it's not a perfect film. We had very little money. We were a tiny crew. We were unexperienced. But uh, I thought it would be a good one to, to share with the podcast because of the, the layers of, of probably thinking in it, which I think reflects a neurodiverse way of, of connecting ideas, you know, collecting clothes, this poem, that's related to this part in history. It's highly researched, but also for the way that it um, came about so kind of uh, it was really messy. In fact, it was, you know, quite chaotic. You know, my oldest crew member was 80. My youngest was 18 months and we <laughs> shot it, you know, you know, really, it was a lot of fun, but it was not at all a, you know, tight set. Um, but yeah, you know, on reflection, I looked at it and I thought, wow, um, here's a film in which at least four of the key creatives were neurodiverse. Um, and that stems from a poem, which is about a, an experience of loneliness that I think is very relatable to neurodiverse people. Um, it's a film about autism and it's a film um, that, perhaps also reflects autistic sensibilities in the way that it's um, visually constructed. Yeah, I um, I absolutely love this film. Um, I'm something that I haven't really, I haven't really talked about on this podcast yet is my absolute love of ballet and opera, um, particularly the ballet race. Um, I'm absolutely fascinated by them. And you, you said that the painting was Sonia Delaney. Am I, am I not correct in saying it's Natalia Gontrova's design for Cockdor? Correct. So, I absolutely love Gontrova's art and I remember seeing um there was a big exhibition of her work a few years ago now um and the way that those those paintings sort of they're so colorful and they inspire so much through just sort of the, the dynamics of creating a design for a ballet and then seeing the ballet and seeing the costumes come to life in that film was just so wonderful and that dancing on the beach and the the way the poem works all just resonated so much more powerfully with me than a film with lots of dialogue would 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 do so. I think so. I I think that 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 sort of silent connection is really powerful. There's a bit in the Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence when um, Anna is dancing naked, and she sort of is sort of the, the description is that it was her own dance and that her own movements. And I think that you're it's really interesting. And perhaps a comparison I hadn't made before was the line between sort of improvisational free form dancing and and stimming and the way that those sorts of movements are are connected um yeah I just wanted to say that I really loved this film I felt very it's 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 really wonderful when you come across something that sort of connects immediately and directly with you um and had I seen it not knowing the context of it and your own experiences with autism 
I would perhaps have just thought that that was because I really love that kind of that kind of story, that kind of silent um, balaic mode of storytelling. Um, but I think it, it's it's made me reflect more on sort of an autistic connection to those those modes of expression and those that that style of art that um, I hadn't perhaps considered before. So I just wanted to say thank you <laughs> for for sharing that in particular with us. It's really um, it's great for me to to hear when it does resonate with. Um, other autistic individuals and you're right about the the set design it is Natalie Gontrova and that is another sort of layer within the film because the costume um in it is Le Coq d'Or and the score is a um the score the composer a wonderful composer called Alina Matienko we she sort of based her score off the score from that original ballet so I guess you know it's a film which has layers and layers of research which and meaning which are there for your excavation if you want to excavate them but if you don't you know my hope as a filmmaker is that it exists as a very simple story about a mother who has to escape a moment of frustration and loneliness and go back to a kind of childlike sensibility by finding this costume in the suitcase and going somewhere which you know, adults generally don't seem to be able to go, but she takes herself there through music and through dance and and through this costume. And, and in that way, it connected back to the brief, you know, collecting clothes. You can take any topic as an autistic person and take it wherever you want. <laughs> I would probably have taken it in a similar direction immediately, just gone, yes, I can do ballet. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I too was just uh, completely charmed by this by this film, and and it was such a privilege for us to be able to watch it. Um, you know, I've watched it two or three times now, and 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 it's just uh, it's just delightful, and it, and it really, it's such a lovely kind of meditation on on loneliness, really, but on like kind of two sides of loneliness. One being that the mother is uh, in the film is is um, clearly yeah, at the beginning she's kind of quite looks quite stressed she's trying to work but she's also trying to look after a toddler everything in the house is 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 messy there's like washing up to do that she's not managed to do and she looks kind of you know stressed about the situation and there's a loneliness there as well because she can't the, the baby is a toddler so she can't really kind of like talk to the the baby in a meaningful way so there's a kind of sadness in her there at that point but then that switches to when she gets her alone time where she sort of shuts the door puts the costume on and has a dance um that that's loneliness as well but in a in a way as the as the poem says you know i am lonely lonely i was born to be lonely i am best so there's that beautiful moment where she's kind of on her own and enjoying her loneliness so it's I just found it really fascinating for me to sort of see kind of the two two sides of the coin of loneliness, which I think is something that is particularly pertinent to to autistic and neuro neurodivergent people, particularly autistic people who can find solace in loneliness and in their selfhood and being on their own and being immersed in their projects or their hobbies or enthusiasms, and how that's not necessarily something that we should sort of pathologize or see as a negative necessarily, but at the same degree, we should also not be just expecting autistic people to be happy on their own completely all the time. That there is an element of sociality as well. So it's just, I don't know, it's just really interesting. I don't know whether you had anything, anything to say on that or any reflections on that at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess my, um, you know, I, I think that there is for, 
for all people, there is a sense of, of loneliness that um, we look to solve. I, I do believe that there is a particular type of loneliness that comes with uh, autism or neurodiversity um, that is that feeling of being between a, a sort of a piece of glass and the rest of the world. And you'll never feel that you're quite able to fully in, in, you can't often fully engage. You do have a sense of loneliness. I mean, I know that while I'm, my life is full and I am fulfilled, there's also a joy to that loneliness because the loneliness, um, it drives you to create. Mm. I mean, without that sort of well of seeking that extra connection, whether that is through dance or whether that is through writing or whether that is through painting, it's exactly as William Carlos Williams says, you know, if when my house is finally asleep and my, my wife and my baby are finally asleep and the sun sets, if I just enjoy my loneliness, mm. then I'm in a space of creative action. And uh, I think that solving loneliness through creativity and through loving that loneliness, which perhaps we just don't have the language for it. Perhaps it's not a loneliness. Perhaps it's actually a contentment mm -hmm. that we're not comfortable with as human beings. But it is a, a theme of, of all my work and it's a theme of um, a neurodiverse life, I believe. And um, it was sort of, sort of special to take a, a poem which has a story and has a theme and reinterpret it in a way which it's not a verbatim interpretation of the poem like we're not seeing a male poet trying to write and then dancing naked like I didn't want to make that film but I did want to make a film that captured the sentiment of what he was talking about and also represented the costumes and the designs and paid homage to the sort of amazing creativity and the the um strong female creativity that's mm. actually under recognized through that era um and often in filmmaking yeah, I'm glad you didn't make the naked poet dancing film. <laughs> but, but who that amongst... would be the literal interpretation. Yes, <laughs> but who amongst us has not wanted to dance naked in front of them while yeah. saying, I am alone, I am alone. <laughs> uh, I, I shall leave that, that horrible image to hide. In all seriousness, it's something which I found not only from your wonderful film, but also uh, from uh, Falling Leaves, which you cite in your exegesis, which I also watched. And um, to ping forward a little bit to a later discussion, The Secret Garden itself, those are all a, these are all texts, to my mind, that are all fundamentally female-driven, and they're all directed by women, and uh, were all written by women as well, uh, both screenplay and original um, uh, source material, but are also, in some respects, all about loneliness and creativity within loneliness, uh, which I found very, very interesting. Um, so in Falling Leaves, for example, it's uh, little Trixie who realises that her sister may not live when the leaves fall. So she mm. takes the very literal response and quite creative response of tying the leaves back on the tree in order to stave off that uh, that loneliness. But also that mission in itself is something of a, a form of contentment, almost a form of self-soothing. And obviously in um, Secret Garden, there is... Mary, who is terribly lonely in Misselthwaite Manor, until obviously she opens herself up, and indeed the house opens itself up to her, and she finds the, the garden itself. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very, very interesting 
theme uh, of, of these three works, you know, and I was wondering, uh, Sophia, uh, how do, do you feel that there was perhaps some sort of affinity unconsciously between the materials there and perhaps the seed, without wanting to sound too diagrammatic, perhaps the seeds of that creativity for you were found in something like Secret Garden, for example? I'm glad that you have uh, picked up on the connection because I, I, there is a, a clear connection between them all, and there's a few connections. And I guess I'll just, I'll just quickly sort of um, explain my connection to the film Falling Leaves. So, Falling Leaves, for anyone that has never seen it, is um, a, as a short, silent film um, by Alice uh, Guy Blaché, and she, um, it's actually the first narrative film. Um, ever written and directed, but um, you wouldn't know often that it was um, made by a woman, but it is, and it's falling leaves. Anyway, in this film, the plot is it's a silent film, and the plot is that a little girl, Trixie, overhears the doctor say that her sister will die by the time the last leaves fall from the tree outside. And little Trixie listens to the doctor. And um, yeah, you could say she interprets his words literally, and she sneaks out in the early morning and she begins tying all the leaves back to the tree. And when the doctor asks her, what is she doing? She says, I am tying these leaves to the tree to stop my sister from dying. And I do think that that is uh, about salving, um, perhaps salving a, a grief or a loneliness, and she's taking an action to um, tie those leaves to the tree. There's also something in it about the inevitability of loss. But what I would probably pick up on, Ethan, is that I think it's about the female autistic experience and it's about actually challenging that um, myth, that stereotype that, you know, you lack empathy in some way because it's not about a lack of emotion. In fact, it's like you have an enormous well of emotion, but perhaps your way of expressing it might be in a might be logical. You might take a logical re response to the problem. You might tie the leaves back onto the tree to to try to prevent that from happening. Of course, you know there's an inevitability of loss, but as little Trixie ties the leaves back onto the tree, she's taking an action to. Um, to do something about this um, this well of emotion, and um, it is it is a way of expressing empathy. It's just perhaps not falling about in tears, and and that is a great segue to the Secret Garden, which is the film um, that um, that we that we all watched, and that um, I thought we could yeah have a chat about. Yeah, I I um I'm really glad you mentioned Falling Leaves because it's it's one of my favourite silent films, and um, I remember when. Céline Scammer's Petite Maman came out, uh, what, last year, two years ago? Um, I That film really resonated with me on an autistic level when I presented a, um, a relaxed screening of it at, at the BFI, and I was thinking about falling leaves in relation to that film and the, um, the sort of autumn as, a, as, a, as, a, as an autistic season is an interesting one. Um, it's probably my, my favourite season for all the colours and sounds and the rustling <laughs> which I like very much um so yeah I, th I think it's really interesting sort of nature and and being alone in nature in the way that sort of those little girls do um is is very similar to to the secret garden and I, I and I think that um it's so it's so strange and I I, I suppose the, the the thing that I really love and that Ethan sort of touched on in terms of loneliness is that 
girls and women are not allowed to be lonely particularly in cinema we're never allowed to just be on our own doing our own thing because that's what men do because men are so interesting and brooding they're so philosophical and they're always you know they're allowed to have their own thoughts whereas we have to be sociable and with other people um which you know sometimes that's fun but sometimes it's also nice to be left alone on your own um walking through gardens and things which I love doing um very much so so um I think I think that connection's really really powerful um and and showing women being allowed to sort of have creative expression have creative thoughts being being on their own to do that um that being said my the main thing that I I, I remember liking the secret garden for that as a child and then coming back to it now um is the presence of other children i find quite distressing um maybe that's because i didn't like children when i was a child and i also don't like children now i'm an adult um so um there was there was there is something sort of i like it i like something like petite maman where the children are quite sort of calm and very mature i mean they're, they're just adult they're, they're like adults in children's bodies whereas in secret garden i think that they are very very childish um which is something i wanted us to talk about and sort of the kinds of behaviors that we see the children um enacting which I'm, sh- I'm sure is what you were also saying about sort of connecting with mary and connecting with with her as a central character um i suppose that's just something i wanted to to say before we are we are we going to move on to the yeah. secret garden i think that that's probably a good place i think so to, i feel like we're that. naturally moving that way yeah so yeah. just for the benefit of the listeners yeah we we have uh sophia has su- suggested a, a, a film that we would um we would watch a feature film and 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 picked out the secret garden uh which to, actually for me this was i thought that i'd seen it before but watching it i was like no i haven't seen this before uh so it was a brand new watch for me i had never seen it um and i i was quite charmed by it actually i thought it was i thought it was kind of wonderful in many ways um but i thought i wonder sophia if you, would you like to just sort of um I mean, give us like a, a brief overview of the film itself and then uh, uh, tell us, you know, why this film in particular, uh, why have you brought this to us? Uh, why does it resonate with you? And 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 how do you sort of see it from this kind of autistic perspective? Yeah, well, it's the um, it's the 1993 version that um, of The Secret Garden, which um, which which I selected. Um, it's directed by Agnieszka Holland, who's a Polish film director and was actually based on a children's book by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This one was executive produced by Francis um, Ford Coppola and um, it has beautiful cinematography by Roger Deakins and the score is just phenomenal so if you don't watch the film just download the score and go walking in the park <laughs> great um, Zbigniew Preisner who did lots of Kozlowski's films wonderful yes. that's, that's my favorite part of this film sorry wonderful the score was absolutely very much interesting sorry mm. for interrupting <laughs> no no not at all um so if anyone doesn't know the story of the secret garden you know it, it's a sort of set it's actually shot in, in Yorkshire in England but yeah you know, it's about a little girl called Mary. It's the turn of the century and she's um, her, she's orphaned once when her parents are killed in an earthquake in India and she's sent back to England on a boat and when she arrives, she goes to live at Misselthwaite Manor, which is her uncle's house, um, her, which is her uncle-in-law. It's her, her mother who was killed in the earthquake, um, her sister's um, husband. And when she gets there, she finds uh, Mithelthwaite Manor to be an incredibly 
dark and miserable place. Uh, her uncle is away a lot and she's forbidden from going many places in the house. Um, but she she's quite feisty, young Mary, and she sneaks out on the first day and she discovers um, in the bedroom of her aunt, who's also deceased. So she's really quite alone, this little girl. Her parents have died. She's gone to live with her uncle. He's not there. The mother is all, her aunt, who is her family connection, has also died. The matron of the house is not very kind to her. And anyway, she finds a key and, and the key unlocks a door in the gardens of Misselthwaite Manor to a secret garden, a garden that has been abandoned. And throughout the film, she uh, makes friends with some of the other children at Misselthwaite Manor, including um, Dickon, who is a sort of a, a garden, he works in the gardens, and, and also her cousin, who is um, a very sickly young boy who's locked in his bedroom all the time. And she fixes the garden really and she she makes it a space for everyone to be um to be in and she sort of yeah um that's sort of the plot but I guess you know for my connection to this film so I loved this film as a child and the way that I watched it was uh, my parents were separated and uh, when I was uh, staying at my father's house which was also a big house for a small girl and he was quite reclusive the one thing he did have was he had laser discs does anyone remember laser discs mm -hmm. like before dvds yeah so he would put on a, a laser disc and and sit me in front of the television with the laser disc and one of the one of the films he had was the secret garden and i just watched this film over and 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 over again <laughs> and i loved that little girl mary and i'd love to talk a bit about her as a character mm. actually because um She's quite unusual. I mean, she's seen as a bit of a brat, but just a funny anecdote. When I had to re-watch this film recently with my partner, who's not autistic, I watched it for the podcast and he sat down and watched it with me. And um, his comment on it was like, oh, wow, that was pretty progressive in 1993 to, to put an autistic character in um, a lead role. <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, but isn't it interesting that, you know, through a different lens in 2022, we might see some of her traits as such, but of mm. course it's not, you know, not seen that way. You know, te technically I'm not saying that's how the director intended it, but there are certain parts of Mary and her character and her personality, this young orphan child, her directness. And, um, you know, there's a number of scenes that I think show that, which does at least to me as a child who didn't know I was autistic, but who mm. did relate to um, yeah. to her. Yeah, likewise. I mean, I had this film on VHS as a child um, and used to watch it over and over again because I, I don't even, I, don't, I can't remember if I liked it or not. I hadn't seen it since I was really young. Um, so it was, it was quite strange to come back to a film and have such a sense of familiarity with it that I knew every single scene and it was so strange to suddenly realize that I knew it because I just sort of forgotten that I used to watch this film so often as a child and I oh what really stands out is um Mary when when she arrives um in 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 England and the other children are singing Mary Mary quite contra contrary and how horrible that is and how much I hate those children <laughs> and how how I would as a child be be treated similarly by other children that I was quite contrary and different and so um and really that should make me really warm to Mary and want and sort of 
see a lot of myself in her, which I do. I mean, the way that she stands up on the bed and sort of shouts like, you, you, you know, how dare you defy me or whatever. I mean, my parents always like to say this an anecdote that I once um, went to like a, pre a preschool group thing and I stood up on the stage and I shouted at everyone, you dare to doubt me, um, which I, th <laughs> I think I think has sort of defined my my personality in, in, in life. Um, but um, it, it's just so strange seeing a child who is so sort of, I think sort of has such a sort of adult opinion of herself and actually not, maybe it's that I find her too similar to how I was as a child, but I, that it sort of grates on me and makes me quite anxious. Like I found this um, before when I've seen things like um, the play of Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime or, or other sort of displays of um, sort of, autistic burnout or or sort of um like when she's hitting walls and things because I've always done that when I've been stressed or or overwhelmed I actually find it really sets me on edge um mm -hmm. and I think I think that that's I, I found it quite difficult going back to it now and so <laughs> having learned how to sort of maybe control certain aspects of, of my behavior that it was like oh my goodness I find this really quite overwhelming um I particularly this is it Colin the boy mm -hmm. yeah I absolutely can't stand him and I don't understand why she warms to him at all because I think he's a spoiled brat and I, pathetic so and he screams so loudly and those screams I had to skip that scene because I I just can't stand that noise um yeah I'd just like to hear because like, <laughs> I, I think it, it's so interesting that the the character resonated with you and you have quite a positive impression of it whereas for me it's it's so strange to me and I wish it I wish it felt differently because normally when you relate very strongly to something that can produce a feeling of sort of warmth and affection towards towards a film whereas in this case it was the opposite and I'm I'm sort of meditating on this because I'm confused by it I don't understand <laughs> why it made me feel this way so I'd love to hear sort of how, how you feel about those characters. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I look at it now, equipped with diagnosis, when I know what I know about um, how, and, and you know, I, I, I relate to the fact that it is, it was confronting to go back to it and to realize that that's how I felt as a child. Yeah. It was confronting to go back to it. And I mean, there's a scene um, when she first arrives at Mithilthwaite, which is, I think, so telling where it is, where she stands up on the bed and and she's asking who's going to dress her because she's a spoiled brat. And, you know, she, she has previously had a, an, a maid who's dressed her, but then they get the dresses out of the cupboard and they say, well, what would you like to wear, Miss Mary? Black, black or black? And she looks at her and she says, well, they're all black. And like point blank, like she, they are all black. And to me, it just made me think about being an autistic child without a diagnosis and people saying things to you and you're just looking at them like they're crazy because they might be speaking figuratively, but you're yeah. like, well, why are you asking? Like, is this a joke? Black, black or black? They're all black. And that's, you know, it's true. And also you're right, you know, picking up on those meltdown scenes. I mean, the meltdowns that she has and that, and that Colin have um, are, are intense. And again, though, I think it's a child who is, um, has a well of deep emotion inside of them and who is locked out of that emotion. I suppose my positive reading on the film and maybe why I kind of love it is that what she does in going out to the garden and bringing that garden back to life is she 
um, finds genuine solace in nature, which I think many autistic people find. And also I think there's this, um, there's this, again, this sort of logical solution uh, mindset and doing something about the problem that she faces in fixing this garden. And she's doing something really kind for everyone at Misselthwaite. She's bringing them all back to life. And, you know, the last line of the film, she says, um, you know, the spell was broken. My uncle learned to laugh and I learned to cry. The secret garden is always open now. It's awake and it's alive. Um, if you look at the world the right way, the whole world is a garden. And I think I kind of latch onto that uh, and this idea of it's an unlocking of something inside of the self. And to me, I see it, I guess, like, I think maybe a more like neurotypical way to look at the film might be to say like, oh, here's a child who learned to deal with her emotions. But I sort of see it as like, these were always there. She was, she had no problem with accessing them, but she had been, she was actually locked out of the world and the society because of the rules and the conventions that had been around her. And, um, she has the keys now to the secret garden. She's actually in control of, um, she's in control of, of that, of that world. And she has the keys, you know, she's been locked out of something. The other thing, I guess I just say, like, and I agree about Colin, like he's kind of, I always wanted her to get together with Dickon at the end. Like it mm -hmm. seems strange to me that, but I mm -hmm. think that's just like a, a class thing that they yeah. just decided yeah. that they just <laughs> couldn't get past it, which is as a child, I didn't notice it, but as an adult, it really irritates me that she can't just be with the obvious one. Um, and it has to be, you know, based on class systems and rules. But I think, um, it's also a film to me, which is about outsiders. Like every character in that film is an outsider. She mm. is an outsider. Colin is an outsider. The uncle is an outsider. Um, the the staff at the house are outsiders. Um, but they're kind of all sort of okay being outsiders as well. Like she she gets off the boat and everyone's awful to her. And they say, Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? And she's so alone. And then she goes to this kind of wild house where everyone's a bit like that and 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 you know she finds the garden so I guess yeah that that would be my sort of that's the sort of positive reading I guess there's a couple of things actually from from that wonderful conversation that I wanted to briefly bring up the first is a bit of background reading I did it is the screenwriter the screenwriter is Caroline Thompson mm. who also did uh, another film we've covered on this podcast which is uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and she wrote most of Burton. She helped co-write most of Burton's most famous works, including Scissorhands, which obviously mm. can certainly be subject to autistic reading. And we've, we've spoken about here Burton being on the spectrum, possibly himself. So there is perhaps um, it's possibly that the autism was not entirely uh, all mm. Burton's doing. And there was perhaps a meeting of minds there, which has not been fully articulated and excavated from her contributions, both to Burton's work and indeed to cinema in general, which I think is something that should be brought up. But that's for a different time. The thing I wanted to that's mention. So interesting. I'm so I'm so mm -hmm. so. It's just that's fascinating. Oh, it's it's. I, I always like to because my autism involves lists, and I like <laughs> to look at whoever has been involved in anything. And the name sounded very familiar. And so I went and looked and, oh, yeah, it was it was her. So I think that's something perhaps to discuss at a later stage. Or to be fair, there might even be a, a work in there about her. But 
that's not for me to say or for me to make. But the mm -hmm. thing I wanted to talk about was um, I I derived an uncomfortable amount of pleasure from the uh, from the sort of the the fact that both Mary and Colin have to go through these very hard knocks to sort of take away effectively their sort of self-importance effectively because they're both at the start they're both even when it is the Mary Mary quite contrary and she is you know isolated by these these children and she's treated pretty awfully they are both yeah pretty lousy individuals as kids they are but they're, but they're but they're both people in my mind who have been subject to not loneliness but emotional deprivation. They are both people who have been um, by their parents. They've been mistreated effectively. They've been starved of affection and attention. And what affection and attention they've got has always felt to them, I think, second best. And so they project their anger. And their hurt and their desire to control outwards um and i think that if i was to give a really out there idea as to why they connect i think it's possible because they recognize perhaps a little bit too much of themselves in each other and it's almost a situation where they cling to each other because they recognize they see themselves in each other effectively and that's how they almost get through the 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 experiences that they both share and i i i have the i have the, the the slightly controversial opinion that i think that a lot of what colin has in particular is not sickliness but i think it's enforced and i think it's enforced by the father on him because of his paranoid fears that he will um he, he will lose his son effectively isn't that it's... just the part of the film ethan that he's fake that it's not real that it's, it's oh i did realize okay <laughs> <laughs> I actually, good question because i've never sort of i've always thought he's a sort of a sickly child and well, I, no, I, 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 I i thought the whole thing was fake i thought that was the yeah. whole point was no. that they sort of, they, everyone had sort of mollycoddled him so much that he just f pretending to have these illnesses no i i genuinely believe i thought that, he had polio when i first watched it no, again, i genuinely i genuinely okay. believe that um if it's not, if it's not that they're not deliberately conning him, mm. then I think there's a certain amount of, especially I think from the the Maggie Smith character, then I think I think there's something of they believe it, or at the very least oh, they yeah. that they actively encourage it. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm with, I'm with Mary. He's just he's just a little brat who's screaming <laughs> his head off. Yeah, no, no, sure. no child with polio could scream like that. I was like, yes, Mary, you tell him. <laughs> yeah, but that, but that is, but that, no, but that's that is that I think is part of the point is that no one, no one has given him any treatment of reality anyone knows mm. give him a good dose of reality really which is what mary gets when she gets there and she's told if you don't if you don't behave i'll box your ears in which is <laughs> let's be honest it's not the best way to treat children i'm just putting that out there but at the same time it's a very important shock of cold water to her system which mm. has been spent pampered in you know british east india for mm. uh for however long it's been and she's you know a a, a, a to this very sort of self-centered lifestyle and so in some respects um you know colin is treated colin colin is almost uh he internalizes his own difference and he internalizes his own um illness so to mm. speak uh to the point where he physically believes it and he's obsessed with like a hump appearing on his back mm. and certainly i think for somebody like me who was not well as a kid 
in a number of different ways, who I think on reflection was a hypochondriac. And it yeah. was it was it was psychosomatic effectively. I could certainly see a lot of that psychosomatic behaviour in Colin, which is perhaps why I felt. I'll, sorry, I'll get. To, I'll let you speak in a minute, David. I've rambled on, but that's certainly why I think I was perhaps a little bit more charitable to the, the little swine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. He is a, a very annoying little boy, but I mean, annoying in that way that privileged little boys from that kind of class are, you know, are and were at that time. But um, yeah, no, I, I think continue I, to be. and continue to be. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Amen. Uh, absolutely. Amen. They've, they've not, they've not gotten much better. Um, no, but what I was, uh, what was I thinking? I was thinking that the, the, the parallel that I would kept thinking about in this, particularly as, um, so the situation is that Colin is, yeah, he's sort of a sickly child kept in his room. They don't even open the windows because they're afraid that germs are going to come in from the outside and kill him. Um, and the, the Maggie Smith's character, uh, Mrs. Medlock, who's kind of the the main housekeeper of the of the house, and all of her staff, you know, run around in circles to 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 tend to this boy and to keep him in his room and to keep you know keep him alive for as long as possible. And what I started to think of as this progresses and as Mary starts to sort of open the house up and she takes him outside, takes him to the garden, they open the windows and all this kind of stuff. Um, and the reaction that Mrs. Medlock, Maggie Smith's character has to that is this kind of double down on it and like trying to, she tries to lock Mary in her room and she's trying to lock away Colin and she's trying to control this situation. I actually found her to be the most interesting character in this film because she's like uh, uh, she's like this this older person who is utterly convinced that things need to be as they are and will go to the to some quite extremes to make sure that the children are in their place and controlled. However, she's never really painted as this kind of evil character. She's not like an evil hateful person. She's just like desperately trying to 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 keep this situation as she thinks it should be and there is a moment later on which i think was a really touching moment actually where she sort of she sort of breaks down into tears because she's um she sort of feels like she's failed uh failed the, the house failed the lord and failed the ch children um and later she, i guess she, i guess you, you kind of get this moment where she sort of realizes that it is better for the kids to be outside and playing in the garden and 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 that he can walk and he's going to be all right and all this sort of stuff and she sort of softens a bit but what i thought was interesting there was the parallels that we'd seen in like and continue to see in in um the i want to be careful i would say this but the sort of some of the sort of parenting measures for autistic people and and now I'm not saying at all that that, that that parents are always too controlling over their autistic children that's not the case at all um I don't know that from personal experience but that um there's this certain societal uh taboo and pressure that's that's sort of put around autism as this kind of thing that is uh needs to be very carefully looked after and this sometimes can be translated in the minds of parents of autistic children of you know absolutely wrapping them up in cotton wool and never letting them out and never let them do anything and they always have to sort of be they've got this kind of quote-unquote disease that has to be sort of managed and and often that can result in that autistic child being losing a childhood really and feeling um uh oppressed and 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 suppressed by that and then that then develops later on into into problems in adulthood and the biggest example of this being um 
the practices of ABA. Um, and I'm not sure if ABA exists or is, is practiced in, in Australia, but this is the applied behavioral analysis where um, it's, it's quite a big thing in America where, uh, you know, autistic children are sort of put into these, these programs of um, effectively training where, where people sort of intervene and try and train their autism out of them and turn them into quote unquote normal people. And the hugely negative effects that this can have on those children, of course, who are never going to lose their autism and never going to get rid of their autism. They're just going to become autistic adults with all of these kind of problems of of their autism having been suppressed and this is a major this is a major major problem i think particularly in america um but i, I and that's kind of the sort of extreme situation of what we get when when we have this idea that autism should be uh, or any kind of disability i suppose should be sort of controlled and managed and locked away and unseen rather than allowed to find its own sort of place in the world i guess and that was the interesting thing that i think came out of this film for me so fascinating. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but I guess what it makes me think is that, you know, as they sort of we sort of touched on earlier, earlier, like it, it is a film about um, outsiders and people who are who are constrained by the conventions around them. But I suppose what all those uh, children do in the film, in the end, is they step outside the control and the structures that they were in. You know, whether it's their um, whether it's Mrs. Medlock or whether it was Mary's parents who actually died anyway in an earthquake and she was orphaned. Uh, they are kind of like little adults and they just sort of go about their lives. And then for a large section of the film, there's no parental parents or anything involved right until, until the very end. So I guess you could see it as a film also about agency and finding that agency and running with it, which is what they all do. Um, but it's a fascinating parallel to think about Colin and his condition, whatever, that is and how he's sort of molly coddled into that state. Ethan, you were going to say something? It was more sort of uh, support what uh, David was saying uh, in particular about certain, and I should stress autistic men that I know of who have been treated with that sort of molly coddling effect where they are socially stunted and, you know, they, they, they are told that either they are different or they are, ill or so on and so forth and it grows them up to be terribly poor at, at social skills especially with individuals of the opposite sex um it's not really much of a, a point which leans on from yours i'm terribly sorry to say but uh i, I rather waylay the well perhaps I, I i might be able to sort of combine those two no, ideas please do, it's, please it's, do. It's, it's, it's something that i i think really gets to the heart of what perhaps my frustration is and, and why i touched on earlier when i was talking about sort of girls not being allowed to be lonely or not being allowed to sort of um <laughs> socialize by themselves you know she's not allowed to be in the garden right and she has to have dickon there and colin and you know <laughs> why are these boys hanging around just get rid of them um <laughs> this is incredibly frustrating but I, I think it's it's something that you know what we're talking about is the way that a child like colin is so indulged and so there's a lean into his his sort of um I mean, let's say, for example, it's, it's a form of neurodiversity. I don't think it is in, in, in this case, but I, I think it's, it's to your point about sort of, you know, 
there's a sort of male creative genius that is that is celebrated in you know oh yes of course because it's the autism that's going to allow him to sort of see things in a different way and his meditation is going to be so much more interesting than than someone like mary who's sort of you know more more forced into sort of masking and 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 and, pre and presenting in in society and this is something that i've found very frustrating is that you're expected as a girl to behave so differently to boys it's it's, it's your autism is it's, it's not, I'm not saying that it's not respected. It's just, it's like, well, yes, you're autistic, but you should still, you know, try harder <laughs> to, to, to fit in in these ways or, 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 or sort of not think outside the box or, 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 or have unique perspectives because you're not supposed to, whereas it's much more indulged with young boys. Um, and, and, and as a result, tends to be easier to diagnose and presents itself more, more, more obviously. Um, and I think it is interesting to see that contrast between the two characters here as, as a sort of parallel um, to that. I agree with you, Lillian. And I think that's, you know, because again, I still, even though I've seen this film again as an adult, I still see it through the lens of a, I mean, I would have, when I first watched this film, I would have been three or four and I continued to watch it until I was about nine or 10. And then I sort of stopped watching it. Um, but, you know, that the lens I had on it as an undiagnosed child is the lens that I sort of still see it through. And I think mm. even as a child, I, I recognised that there was a difference in the way that Mary was different. There's there's nothing that can be said about Mary that doesn't say that she is different and she is ostracized. Colin is also different, but he is treated differently for that difference to the way mm. that Mary is treated. However, Mary is still the unlikely hero of this film in some ways, and it is through her creativity in, in lots of ways in bringing the garden back to life, and it is through her... Um, well, I mean, she's like, you, she is a bit of a brat, but in some ways it's all for good reason in the story because she's also sort of like feisty and she gets things done and she creates this uh, world and she opens up she opens up a world which uh, had been locked off to everybody. But um, absolutely there is a parallel between the way that she is treated for her difference and the way that Colin is treated for his difference. And then you've got the whole class aspect on top of that which you know watching it in 2022 there were so many things that I didn't notice as a child that I thought this is so just backwards and bizarre and mm. you know but there's still something very pure about their journeys as outsiders and getting agency. The the discussions about sort of restrictions on female creativity and autism is something I wanted to <clears throat> talk about as we sort of move into maybe the, the final stage of the podcast, which is I wanted to talk about your upcoming work on your feature film, which I found exceptionally interesting for the way you're interested in highlighting female neurodiverse voices. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and sort of how you see, uh, perhaps do you see things like The Secret Garden or uh, the presence of someone like Caroline Thompson in that sort of uh, should I say unrecognized female neurodiverse perspective? So I guess um so my next project, which you know, it's still sort of in it's in early development at the moment. And it's an essay film, it's a documentary essay. Um, and I noticed that the Autism Through Cinema group and podcast have looked at a number of film essays. And I have to say that I think the film essay is a particular format which is 
wonderful for neurodiverse creatives because of the way that it allows for divergence and that it actively experiments with the medium of cinema and it allows you to show your thinking on screen and show the way that you think. And I think one of the things that really excites me about my new project, um, which the impetus for it was the film Falling Leaves, um, Alice Gee's beautiful film about little Trixie who ties the leaves back onto the tree to stop her sister from dying. And uh, watching that and feeling that it says something so layered about um, creativity and neurodiversity and silence and that silence and the silencing of neurodiverse voices in film and neurodiverse women in film is actually connected to the silencing of women's voices in film in general. And my relationship to silent films on an aesthetic level being a film that allows for sensory input without sensory overload and to have space without over-explanation. And also, you know, I've sort of connected this idea of falling leaves and sort of the missing voice of people like Alice Gee in film history to the missing voices of autistic women and autistic female creativity, which I think is, um, it, it, it is, it has its own, it has its own voice. It has its own way of being expressed. And um, yeah, so it's, a, it's an essay film in which I sort of actually begin by investigating my diagnosis because um, the word diagnosis, you know, it, it comes from Latin to discern, to know, um, and this idea of truth. So I sort of look at that as a concept and then from there um, look at the relationship to neurodiversity in silent films. And um, I suppose, you know, in the way that little Trixie is tying the leaves to the tree to stop her sister from dying, I would say that the process of creativity um, as a late diagnosed autistic female is kind of about tying those parts of yourself to the tree to stop them from dying because it sounds bleak, but um, it is true that you're sort of it's sort of trained out of you to, to listen to those and to, to talk. Well, actually, you're not trained to not listen to them, but you're trained to not share them publicly. So I think this sharing of thought, of autistic thought, um, and this idea of tying your leaves to the tree to stop your ideas from dying is something that I'm really interested in. And like Temple Grandin says about her process, you know, her thinking pattern always starts with very specific things and then spreads out into in sort of a more general and associational way of thinking. And I think an essay film format like Varda's The Gleaners and I or or like Anderson's Heart of a Dog allows for that way of thinking. And, you know, if, if my structure is a tree, then the leaves are my ideas and it's sort of mutating and diverging, but it does touch on the missing autistic women in history and it does touch on these ideas of tying your ideas, your, tying your thoughts back to nature and grief and the grief that comes with um, late diagnosis for a lot of people, the grief that comes with that. That's amazing. It's fantastic. And so, like, um, you know, best of luck with uh, with finishing that that film, Sophia. And, and obviously, we'd absolutely love to see it when it's when it's done. So absolutely send it through to us because we'd be so excited to see that. It sounds wonderful. Um, we're going to bring things to a close now. But I did want to just ask one final quick question of you, Sophia, just uh, just that came to mind. And I thought you might be interesting to hear your opinion on this. Um, obviously we might have people listening to this podcast who are themselves autistic people or autistic women indeed who are interested in you know getting into 
filmmaking or writing or producing. And I wondered if you had any sort of like little nuggets of advice or or suggestions that you might have for people about for autistic people is particularly about how to sort of um how to get into this sort of thing or the, or some of the challenges that might be faced and how they might be overcome potentially yeah it's a big question i'll try to think of uh i mean i think um i mean the first thing i would say is this the film industry can be a really challenging place on one level for autistic creatives and for autistic people and for autistic women because there are a lot of things which can be quite triggering. I mean, for me, it's things like film set environments and lights and sensory stimulation. I really hate working in studio sets. I, I like to work out on the out in nature if I can. And other things that you know is it's not a particularly clear framework sometimes and, and there's a lot of uh, coded communication and um, can be a really highly codified environment which can be difficult to work out if you're autistic and you're looking for the sort of the, the rules and you want people to be clear with you about their expectation their rules like these things don't happen often in film and it can be very challenging but what I would also say is that like the skills that autistic individuals bring to their work are skills which the film industry is so desperately in need of and often mm. lacking when it comes to things like um system implementation that that is functional and works or when it comes to things like um just i mean creativity and, and innovation like these are things that autistic individuals bring in 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 huge amounts and i guess what i would like to see is more um, neurodiverse or autistic filmmakers uh, feeling and being open about their neurodiversity too because I meet a lot of neurodiverse people in the film industry who have been drawn to this industry and who work within it but it's not like a thing that we talk about it's not sort of it's not like there's a sort of connection that's been made between those skill sets and what autistic people bring and the medium of cinema and just the industry in general and what that can offer. Um, we also work in an industry where we actually do have a lot of power to control how we run our sets and how we run our productions and how we run our companies. And I think if I have any advice, it's actually hold your own, like, and it's okay to say, um, it, I think in my experience, I would just say that Sometimes it is hard to be an autistic person in in this industry, but when I look at the benefits that I know that my autism brings, it far outweighs any of those challenges. And um, people do respond well to the things that you will bring to the forefront. And don't be afraid to say, hey, I've got a predictability mindset, so I can tell you that if you do this, then I think this is going to happen and that might lead to a problem. Because <laughs> actually not everyone has that and that was a real light bulb for me to realize that there are parts of your neurodiverse way of being which mean that you are a super asset to these productions and to this way of working and those benefits far outweigh some of the challenges that you otherwise might have and um and it's also up to us as an industry to accommodate the needs of neurodiverse people better. And it's actually not that complicated. There are some simple things we could do at a structural level. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for that, Sophia. Um, 
that's I think that's all really really good advice and hopefully um hopefully a few people will hear that and be uh, empowered to 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 step forward into the into the film industry that is really wonderful and this has been a really wonderful discussion and we've managed to cover a lot of ground your own film secret garden bits and pieces of your thesis and 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 this bit of advice that you've given at the end which is really wonderful um so we'll bring it to a close there um and I want to say uh, thank you again to Lillian and to Ethan for your inputs as ever but a special thank you to you Sophia for uh for approaching us for being a fan of the podcast and for uh, all the wonderful work that you've been doing and for all the discussions that we've had today so thank you very much for joining us oh it's been so it's so exciting to talk to you guys really <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> thank we've you we've loved having you here thank you very much we have indeed um all right thanks very much and uh, join us again for another episode in a couple of weeks time goodbye you have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.